I am Rabbi Stephen Carr-Rubin. I am the Rabbi Emeritus here at Charming Kehillat Israel Reconstruction's Congregation of Pacific Palisades. Um, I like to begin with a blessing over study. Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kitshanu B'Mitzvotah V'Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah, which is uh, the blessing that gives thanks for the opportunity to fulfill the mitzvah of study, study of Torah, in this case, Torah with a capital T, as opposed to small Torah like the ark behind me, where we have the scroll of the Torah. You know, we Jews like to be really confusing with our language. We like to say something like Torah, and then it can either mean literally these five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, or it can mean all of Jewish literature, or it can mean study in general, you know, that's how we, over the centuries, have used our language. Because, uh, as the Talmud says, Talmud Torah Keneged Kulam, the study of Torah is sort of equal to everything, and Torah in the, in the large sense. So what we're going to do tonight, for the next hour or so, is um, I'm going to mostly talk. That's what we're going to do. So <clears throat> just as a little touch of Torah, here's a fascinating, wonderful story from the Talmud. The Talmud recounts uh, an occasion when, and there's lots of these in the Talmud, sort of discussions about the Romans and how the Romans used to interact with the rabbis, and they would have, like, uh, debates and upsetting moments, and, you know, the Romans were the secular power. So there's this occasion that's quoted in the Talmud where the imperial Romans are upset with the local rabbi, as they tended to be. because the rabbi had been giving sermons that the local Roman rulers thought was were slightly incendiary and were, you know, encouraging people to uh, say things against the government. No government ever likes that. So the Romans handled this handled this with their the diplomatic tools available to powerful governments of every age. They sent soldiers to visit the rabbi. So the soldiers come uh, to this little town where this rabbi was speaking too often, as rabbis tend to do, too long, as all rabbis tend to do. And um, the townspeople hear that the soldiers are coming to arrest the rabbi. So they surround his home with the rabbi still inside, as if they're going to protect the rabbi. The soldiers come, and as the story goes in the Talmud, The soldiers arrive, the townspeople say to them, leave him alone, leave him alone. Look, he harasses us too, and we ignore him, so you do the same. You see, the more things change, the more they stay the same. That's my introduction rabbi story. So, Talmud. I'm going to say something about Talmud for a minute, uh, even though many of you have been in many classes like this in the past, but... Just to have a sense of it, um, you know, Jewish, all of Jewish literature begins with Torah in the small t, that is, the, what's behind me in the ark, the five books of Moses. And everything sort of builds from that. If you could sort of picture, I suppose I could have brought it in, picture books piled up one on the other. And the bottom book is a book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's the first five. And then the rest, then the next sort of 21 of the prophets in 
the Jewish Bible and the Hebrew Bible, and then the next 13, which are all the writings that we all know, you know, Psalms and Proverbs and Job and Song of Songs and Ruth and all that. They're all stacked up. So here's like the 39 books of the Hebrew Bible. They're in a big stack. But then at some point, they're done. The 39 books are done. Then what? Then we have those who are studying it asking questions about it. Well, it says this, but how about that? It says something very simple, like, you know, six days a week you should work, and on the seventh day, Shabbat, you should rest. Sounds simple enough, clear enough. Work for six days, rest on the seventh. But then, of course, because we're Jews, everybody starts to argue about, well, what constitutes rest exactly? You know? And they argue back and forth. Is this rest? And is that rest? You know, it's my my favorite example, which I've used many times in most classes, which is the rule in the Talmud that if, you know, Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbat, you don't blow the shofar. We do. But in traditional Judaism, it says if Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbat, you know, the great mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah that everybody looks forward to is, is Lishmoa, Call shofar to hear the sound of the shofar. It's not actually the mitzvah isn't to blow the shofar. It's to hear the shofar. So you, uh, we, that's, that's the tradition, except for the rabbis decided you should, uh, if it, Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbat, you shouldn't blow the shofar. And this emerges out of a principle in the Talmud that's called building a fence around the Torah. So, there really isn't a prohibition about, there's nothing wrong with blowing the shofar, really. What you're not supposed to do is work. They didn't consider blowing the shofar work, but knowing human beings as we are, the rabbis in their conversation said, yeah, well, it, it's really okay to just to blow the shofar, but what if the shofar blower picks up the shofar and goes to blow the shofar and it sounds like this? And no sound comes out because there's something stuck inside the shofar. What would the shofar blower naturally do? He, the shofar blower would clean it out. He would fix it. He or she in this case, but in those days it was probably always a he. He would fix it. The shofar isn't working. My job is to blow the shofar. Take out a tool and go ream out the shofar so he can go right? The minute the shofar blower does that, just violated the Shabbat because you're not supposed to work on Shabbat. And when the rabbis ha- answered the question at great length in the Talmud, well, what constitutes work? They end up with 39 different categories of work, fixing and cutting and chewing and solving and whatever, mending and all the carrying and all these things, different categories. Well, mending is one of the categories of work you're not supposed to do on Shabbat. If the shofar blower were then to fix the, mend the shofar, then somehow instead of doing a mitzvah, it'd be an averad, it'd be a transgression. Suddenly we're putting the shofar blower in the position of following his own instincts and violating the Shabbat. So to put a fence around the Torah, which simply said, don't work on Shabbat, we have a law that says, all right, well then if Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbat, you don't blow the shofar because That'll protect the shofar blower from accidentally violating the Shabbat by fixing the shofar, which is really the issue. 
That's how rabbis think. We're very complicated. So, in any event, was not consider- the question is, it was not considered work to blow the shofar. The answer was no, that wasn't work. It's kind of like rabbis and cantors work on Shabbat, but it's not considered work. It's considered prayer. It's considered leading the congregation in prayer. That's not work. We never work. This follows along that famous statement that everybody makes, do what you love and you never work a day. And if you're a rabbi, this is what you do and it's never work. I never worked ever. Anyway, yes. So the question is, is that the reason that the Orthodox don't use instruments on Shabbat? It's one of several reasons that the Orthodox don't use. But that, yes, that's one of the reasons that's behind the reason, which is to try to prevent you from being in a position where you would accidentally violate the Shabbat. Um, because, as you know, if you read about the temple times when the temple was in Jerusalem, there were instruments, they were there, they were playing instruments, they were Levites who had all the, all the Psalms talk about instruments and talk about lots of the Psalms, not all of them. Many of the Psalms talk about instruments playing and, and in fact, this is an instruction to the conductor. It, that, that's the beginning of many of the Psalms. Here's instructions to the conductor and there's different things. So, you know, in, in the olden days, pre-Orthodoxy, when it was just temple worship, we had lots of instruments. But as things evolved, and that's part of the, that's why the Talmud is 20 volumes. It's 20 volumes long because we sit around and argue about every little thing. And the Talmud has two different kinds of conversations. There's halakha and agada. Halakha is the word that we use for law, even though it literally means the way, from l'cholech to, to walk, to go. Halakha is the way, and in Jewish life, that's the, all the legal things. Do this, don't do this. Agada is the stories. Agadah are stories that we told, literally storytelling, that the rabbis told about in order to prove a law or in order to make a point, in order to describe something that they wanted to communicate because people love stories. As Elie Wiesel once so beautifully said, we are storytellers. And we learn through stories and we interact through stories and we remember stories better than we remember laws. Look around the country. We remember stories. In fact, that's part of the drama of our social media age and our internet age is everybody gets to tell a story. My voice gets to be as loud as your voice. You don't get to be any more important than I am. If I can get 20 million followers, I can be Kanye West and have say more things about Jews than there are Jews in the world to more followers than there are Jews that even exist in the world or whatever. Because stories, and, and people react to stories, you know, dramatic stories. This, you know, look at Brazil. Brazil, isn't that where the last one just happened? Somebody got elected, and the person that got elected that lost said, I didn't really lose, and all these people, you know, they just had a their own version of ours. Mm-hmm. So, because the story, storytelling, people tell stories, and if you believe the story, then you act on the story. Somebody comes home and says, you know, that man down the street just beat me up, you get up and you want to go protect that person, whether they made up the story or not. Um, anyway, Talmud. Talmud is one of the Hebrew words literally for study. Uh, and it records rabbinic teachings spanning about 600 years from around the first century, uh, 
through the sixth century. So as I was building up, remember when I first started talking, I was building up all those books. We had the 39 books of the Hebrew Bible. And then we had scholars, rabbis, sages having all these conversations. And eventually, um, around the year 200, they were all compiled into what's called the Mishnah. Six more collections of books. The Mishnah has six different, what are called um, tractates, let's say, of one of them is called Zeraim Seeds. The second one is Moed Holidays. The third is Nashim, things related to women. Nizikin, damages. Kodeshim is holy things. And Taharot are clean things. Um, and all of, so then there's all these six more books, compilations of rabbis, conversations based on their discussions of, well, what does the Torah really mean? What's the Torah mean for our day? It's kind of like one of the things that's in the Torah. It says, if you're very famous, it's called, the principle is peya, which means a corner. It's, um, and in the Torah, it says, when you go to, I'm sure you've heard this many times, when you are, if you have your field and it's time to harvest, when you go to harvest your field, here's the field, you're supposed to leave one corner of your field unharvested. Why? Audience participation. Why do you leave it? Who's it for? The poor. It's for the poor. It's for those who don't have a, anything to harvest. Part of, in an agricultural society, the only way you could take care of people was, when that was, that was a mandated in the Torah, when you, when it's harvest time and it's time for you to harvest your field, leave a paya, a corner of your field for the poor and the fatherless and the widow and those who are most vulnerable in society who don't have a field of their own. They're guaranteed they can eat because every field left its corner, un- allegedly left its corner unharvested and so they could go and, and take. And it's same with vineyards, same with trees. What are those called? Not vineyards. Orchards, thank you. In orchards, I used to speak English. Orchards, English is my non-first or second language. Um, In any event, you're supposed to leave a part of it for those who are most vulnerable so that they're taken care of. And then everybody moved into cities, most people. So now I don't have a field. So am I free from that obligation? Of course not, because we're Jewish. So instead, in the conversation of the rabbis of, well, now we're all living in the city, but I don't have a field, so what am I going to do with that commandment to leave a corner of my field for the poor and the widow and the fatherless and the homeless? What am I supposed to do? And so they did what was logical. They said, well, what percentage of that farmer's income do we think this corner represented? Maybe up to 10%, and therefore you should give up to 10% of what you make, that's tithing, as a tzedakah. And in cities, we created funds for the poor. Ultimately, we ended up with Jewish federations. We ended up with all these tikkun olam projects and things that people do to help and homeless shelters and food banks. We are very proud here at KI that we are the single largest donor to the West Side Food Bank every year uh, because of our holiday food drive. Um, but that's what Talmud is about. It's about, essentially, after we had those six books of the Mishnah, then that was fixed. 
And then, of course, since we're Jewish, we kept talking for the next, I don't know, four or five hundred years. And all of the conversations that we, well, but how does this relate to me now? And how does this relate to me then? And what about this situation? What about that situation? Ultimately got written down in two different places in Israel, in what's called the Jerusalem Talmud, and then even bigger in Babylonia, in what most people think of as the Talmud, which is the Babylonian Talmud, where we had these these uh, seminaries of sages getting together and wrestling with these issues, issues of everyday life, issues that I mentioned in the six books of the Mishnah, things related to holidays, things related to everything daily life, things related to civil disobedience, things related to civil courts and criminal courts, and who's responsible if uh, <clears throat> someone's walking in front of your house and they trip and fall? Are you responsible? You know, Or if they're walking and something falls out off of your balcony and hits them, are you responsible? What were you responsible for before that to do to protect them? All these things are the kind of conversations that took place in the Talmud because the Talmud was a kind of a, an ongoing conversation about everyday life and how the Torah in its original form might inform whatever era people were living in at the time. So, um, one of my favorite stories from the Talmud. <clears throat> it was a custom, according to the Talmud, <clears throat> to consider that the purpose of marriage was procreation. The primary purpose of marriage in certain periods of Jewish history, much of Jewish history, was procreation. Procreation is the very first mitzvah in the Torah. The very first mitzvah, God says... According to Genesis, pru, ervu, and meloat ha'aretz, be fruitful and multiply and fill up the earth with us. We've done a pretty good job of filling up the earth with us. we got how many billion, almost eight billion or something now, people out in the earth. So it was understandable in every era in the past to consider that the primary mitzvah of getting married was pru, ervu, was procreation. And so it became a custom that if a couple was not able to have children after 10 years, for some it said 7 years, 10 years that it was appropriate to get divorced and find another partner and try to procreate and fulfill that mitzvah because they clearly weren't able to fulfill the first mitzvah of being fruitful and multiply. So there's a story in the Talmud, absolutely one of my favorite stories, that there was a couple loved each other, lived together, very unsuccessful in having children. And after 10 years, they finally went to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, one of the leading uh, rabbinic scholars of the Talmudic era, and said, I guess it's time for us to get divorced and separate because it's been 10 years and we haven't been able to have any children. So the rabbi said, well, I tell you what, just as you begin your marriage with feasting and uh, drinking, celebrating, you should do the same before you part. So go home, have a celebration with each other, and then I'll grant you a, a get. I'll grant you a divorce. So with mixed emotion, because they did love each other, 
this couple does what the rabbi says. They go home for the last day of their marriage. And while they're eating, <clears throat> the wife makes sure to continue to pour one cup after another of wine to her husband. And as he is feeling the effects of, in a positive way, of his drinking, this is not an AA meeting, uh, he says to his lovely wife, whom he loves, my dear, look around the house. Before you go back to your father's house, which is where she was going to go, and move out of our house, I want you to choose one thing in the house that's your favorite thing that's most precious to you so that you can take it with you to your father's house. She says, okay, I will think about that and do that. She continues to ply him with wine until he falls asleep. And the minute he falls asleep, she says to her servants, because they have servants, quick, load him into and his bed and carry that bed to my father's house. So the servants do, and when he wakes up the next morning, he looks around and he says, where am I? And she says, you're in my father's house. And he says, what am I doing here? And of course she says, I did exactly what you told me to do. You instructed me to take the best thing that's most precious to me in this house to my parents' home, and there's nothing in the world more precious to me than you. Real, in the Talmud story, don't you love this? I almost start crying every time I say it. Realizing, this is my favorite, one of my favorite stories, realizing that that's the most important thing to them. They didn't ask for the divorce, and they both went home together and lived the rest of their lives together. Without the mitzvah pruervu, but the mitzvah of loving each other was, they decided, even more precious than that. So it's those kinds of things in the Talmud that I love. <clears throat> and there's also the sort of drier, which I don't love so much, so I'm not even going to talk about them. So, <clears throat> but here's the thing. You know, how did we end up with all these conversations? We ended up with it because when the Romans finally defeated everybody and took over in Israel... Um, as many of you know, this uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai made a deal with the Roman general Vespasian to that they would turn over Jerusalem to him if they he would let them, this rabbi and his students, go in safety and go to an obscure little village called Yavna and at least have a school where they could teach. And Vespasian said, great, good deal. Go talk about whatever you want to talk about. And it was that uh, seminary, essentially, that saved the Jewish people from extinction. Because um, once we were no longer uh, in control of the temple in Jerusalem and all of the rituals that made up the sacrifices and the offerings that were the religion and the religious uh, practices of Judaism what would have been logical would have been for Judaism to die out, and that would be the end of it. And it was because of what Yochanan ben Zakkai did, and these students who became the rabbis, who ended up with these conversations that became the Mishnah, ultimately, 
that Judaism continued and shifted from the temple in Jerusalem to what we have, what we're doing right here, here and on Zoom. Temples, that is, congregations, Beit Tefillah and Beit Knesset, houses of worship, houses of gathering, houses of study, Beit Midrash, that kept Judaism alive. We evolved. That's why the founder of Reconstructionist Judaism, Mordecai Kaplan, was so on point when he defined Judaism as the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people, because he looked at the history of the thousands of years of Judaism and said, why are we still here? You know, how is it that we are still around? We, what, now 15, 16 million, who knows, depends on who's counting and who raises their hand and says, I'm Jewish. Out of 8 billion people, there's, you know, we're this teeny, teeny, teeny little group. We should have been wiped out a million times over and over again. And we're still here. But we're still here because of moments like what we're doing right this minute. We're still here because we have Torah study every Saturday, in fact, every Friday and every Saturday, because those, that little scroll behind me with those little five books of Moses that were written thousands of years ago, in our minds, in the Jewish mind, is a living document. It's not an ancient text back there. It's a living document. And it's the living document that created these ongoing conversations that become ongoing stories that keep us alive which is why the, the Hebrew poet Achad Ha'am so famously said, you know, more than Jews have kept the Shabbat, the Shabbat has kept Jews and Judaism because it's in the keeping of our holidays and our way of life, no matter where we were scattered around the world, that kept us alive. And mostly it's in having ongoing conversations. It's hard to have conversations when we're both on Zoom and in person, which is part of the challenge of doing this because I don't like talking for an hour. I'd much rather have everybody else talk, but I'm a rabbi. I can talk forever. <clears throat> so um, <clears throat> let me think about where I'm going. Ah, yeah, enough of that. So <clears throat> let me give you a great example. You're going to love this if you've never heard this. This is how the Talmud works. Ready? Thomas Jefferson told Abraham Lincoln, I do not think that the framers of the Constitution had it in mind to prohibit slavery. To which Lincoln answered, I cannot conceive that they did not expect ultimately to prohibit slavery. And then John F. Kennedy interrupted, Mr. Jefferson, you are correct in theory, but Mr. Lincoln, I think you are correct in practice. Okay, that sounds like a ridiculous conversation, don't you think? That's the Talmud. That's exactly how the Talmud works. Editors of the Talmud essentially cut and pasted snippets of teachings from 500 years of conversations and commentary. Sometimes those conversations actually took place. They were people living at the same time. And sometimes they were teachers from different countries in different centuries, as if they were having a conversation just like my conversation with Jefferson and Lincoln and Kennedy. And that's what it looks like. Those of you on Zoom can't see because, unfortunately... You can't see. You're too far away. But this is what a page of Talmud looks like for those of you who are here. And what it looks like is there's text in the middle, and in the middle first it's 
Mishnah text, that's that stack, and then it's Gemara, which is more teaching, commentary, and then all around the edges are all kinds of more commentaries, which are the cut and pasted of people in different centuries across the world. You know, over here it's Rashi from the 11th century, and over here it's someone from the 16th century, and over here it's someone from the 18th century, and over here it's someone from the 17th century, and they're all as if they're in conversations with each other. That's what makes reading the Talmud such a challenging and interesting experience. Not only that, it's in two languages, because the Mishnah part is in Hebrew, because that's how it was written, and the Gemara part is mostly in Aramaic, which was the next iteration of language, kind of the Jesus time language that everybody spoke. We all know Aramaic, because whenever we say Kaddish, that's an Aramaic. Sounds Hebrewish, and it's mostly Hebrewish, but not exactly Hebrew because it's Aramaic, <clears throat> which is a cognate language of Hebrew. So we have some things that we still do in Aramaic, even in our normal prayers, like the Kaddish, but most things are in Hebrew. Um, and in fact, the Kaddish is in Aramaic because it was the language of the time when it was written, and at the time that it was spoken, the rabbis, and included in services, it was the rabbis wanted to make sure that everybody understood it, so it was the language in which they understood. Uh, most people don't understand Aramaic anymore, but we still have it. And in fact, the Kaddish, as some of you probably know, the Kaddish didn't originally start out as a prayer of, about mourning or grief. It, in fact, uh, has a couple of different origins, one of which was that it was a tribute to to the teacher at the end of a class. Uh, it, it was Kaddish de Rabbanan, it was called, because there's several different versions of Kaddish, and one of them was the students would essentially praise the teacher in flowery language for their hour of teaching, and then when the teacher died, those students would recite the Kaddish in his memory because that's what they would do to honor the teacher at the end of every one of his classes, and ultimately the Kaddish evolved into a generic prayer that we say for mourning and for grief, even though the words of the Kaddish, as you've heard a million times, say nothing about sadness, grief, or loss, but magnified and glorified and sanctified is the power that gives us the ability to be here with each other. So, in any event, Talmud is wonderful because it's like juggling. You're juggling all these names and comments and commentaries from people across hundreds of years, all contributing to the same conversation. And we don't have Talmud anymore, but we certainly have all these conversations going on all the time. And we continue to build on what I would call contemporary rabbinic literature, which is all of our conversations. We have Torah study every week. We take the same words, and every time you read it, you find something personal, new in it. When I uh, had the privilege of writing my uh, my Torah commentary book, The Year with Mordecai Kaplan, uh, the thing that made it fun to write, for me, was that my commentary on each of the Torah portions 
got to include a personal meditation, a personal commentary about how this relates literally to me, Stephen Carr Rubin, and my life and my family and my history and my work as a rabbi in a community to take a sentence from the Torah and that's thousands of years old and bring it into the everyday of our lives. So one of the things that the Talmud talks about that is something that I do every single morning. You can't see this either when you're on Zoom, but these are morning prayers. If we had, which we don't because we're not in the sanctuary, and if you happen to have a uh, Shabbat Siddur, a prayer book, uh, the Reconstructions prayer book in any event, every prayer book does this, but in the Reconstructions prayer book, on starting on page 153, you will find something called Birchot Hashachar, which literally means morning blessings. It has been our tradition from Talmudic times, I'm going to share what the Talmud tells us to do about it, to recite a series of one-sentence blessings in the morning as a kind of a waking up. Uh, it says in the Talmud, in the tractate called Brachot, which means blessings, it says when you hear the sound of the rooster, okay, raise your hand if you hear a rooster in the morning. Anybody ever hear roosters anymore? See, it depends on where you live. Most people around here never get to hear roosters anymore. Um, when when we, we wake up in our house, we mostly hear the sound of... Um, uh, never mind. Um, well, eagles. We hear the sound of eagles in my family. Why? Because my wife, who's on the Zoom, is obsessed with watching the eagles up in Big Bear. If you haven't seen this... By the way, she just laid an egg yesterday. Did she lay one today? She laid the egg yesterday. Yeah, it's very cool. Anyway, so if you haven't seen this, go to, what is it called, Live Big Bear Eagle Nest or something like that. Uh, friends of Big Bear have this camera on an eagle's nest. We watched it last year and watched the whole drama for months of the sitting on the egg and the fledgling and eventually flying away. And this is their one of their homes, so they come back every year to the same. Anyway, so Didi is obsessed with watching the eagles, so I get to hear the sound of whatever's going on in the eagle nest in Big Bear day and night. Um, but it's very exciting to watch. It's like amazing to see that drama of... In any event, the Talmud says, yeah, listen, you showed up, so don't... <laughs> you have no one to blame but yourselves for this. The Talmud says, upon hearing the sound of the rooster... One should recite what is the first blessing that I say uh, every morning while I do these, actually, while I'm doing my Qigong exercises, but that's a conversation for another night. In any event, you're supposed to say, Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher natan l'sichvi bina l'havchin ben yomu ven layla. One of the first morning prayers, which means, blessed are you, Adonai, our God, rule of the universe, um, we have a different version in the Reconstructionist prayer book that says, who gives the rooster or the bird or the heart, depends on how you translate it, understanding the ability to distinguish between day and night. Because the rooster was like everybody's alarm clock. They would wake up early in the morning. And then it says, upon opening your eyes, you should say, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam pokeach ivrim which means, blessed are you, 
Adonai, our God, sovereign of the universe, pokeach ivrim means who gives sight to the blind, who makes the blind see. Now, the reason I'm going through these blessings is because of Midrash. That is, because of the story versions of the Talmud. This is both Halakha and Agadah. Halakha is, here's what you're supposed to do. This is this is to fulfill the mitzvah. Here's a mitzvah, do it. And Agadah is, why should I do that? <laughs> Basically. So the mitzvah is, recite these blessings. And the Agadah is, hmm, what does it mean to you? To me, that's how I read it. So every morning when I recite these, I do this version because I like it. And every time when I say, who gives sight to the blind, I think of something like, ah, I'm acknowledging that mysterious power of enlightenment. That somebody reads something and goes, ah, I never thought of that. Now, you could be literally give sight to the blind, as in, you know, healers. I never quite got that good of being a faith healer. Although I do have faith, but I'm not exactly a faith healer. But who gives sight to the blind could mean, I mean, what else could it mean? For those of you who are in the room, because I can't really see the the Zoom because it's too far away for me to read what anybody would write. What else could give sight to the blind mean? To enlighten somebody. <clears throat> in To be able to see things as they are, as opposed to they are. as they aren't. <laughs> Or to see things God's eyes. Ah, to see things through God's eyes. To try to see the world. You know, we all have our own particular lenses through which we see the world. Uh, John Gray got really wealthy off of that, I think. You know, wasn't he the one? Men are in Mars and women are in Venus, right? Great book. I liked it, actually. Um, and because, you know, people have different, we see the world differently. You know, my wife always says, <clears throat> aren't you happy that I'm quoting you a lot, Dee? Yeah. My wife always says to every young uh, girl that she meets, marry a boy with sisters. <laughs> she always says, I have three sisters. That's why she said that. Yeah. Marry, a, marry a man who grew up with sisters because they sort of get a woman's point of view because men and women are different. I had three sisters, so I grew up with all those girl things. <clears throat> no. And it makes a difference if you grow up in one way. It makes a difference if you grow up in this country or in another country. It makes a difference if you're black or white. It makes a difference if you're Asian or you're not. It makes a difference what language you speak. You know, it makes a difference the cultural milieu in which you were raised. <clears throat> I just read a, an article this morning about, uh, from a, a writer, a psychologist in Finland. Denmark, which of those is the number one happiest country? One of Finland or Denmark? Yeah. Finland, I think. I think it's actually Finland. Anyway, whatever it is, it's been the same for the last five years. So she wrote this article about what is it that makes us people in this little country so happy? What do we do? What don't we do? You know, and it was like there were like five things that she wrote. They were all things that don't happen here. Not judging people being connected to community. Anyway, whatever it was. But you, you read it and you go, oh, that's the cultural milieu in which those pe- this is the norm for them. Their norm is that. Our norm is we shoot people. Right? It's our norm. Every single day. 
I think we've had, last year we had more mass shootings than we had days of the year. It's like, seriously? But hey, that's what we do. So, Pokeach Ivrim, every morning when I say thanking God for giving sight to the blind, I am praying that people who are misled by misinformation will have their eyes open and go, oh, what was I thinking? You know, and all of us have that experience at some, hopefully at some times in our lives. We go, you know, I was sure of that. And then suddenly someone went, but look here and you go, oh, I, I didn't realize that. I was so certain about something. Yes, Bert. Opening their eyes. Oh, I love that. Some people, Bert said, some people have the, the practice of starting that blessing with their eyes closed, and when they say opening their eyes. I like that. And and this anyway, so for me, something as simple as a one-line blessing becomes a world in and of itself of where my mind might go every morning, somewhere different, to think about who gives sight to the blind, what are ways in my own life that I've been blind? What are ways in my own life that I've been blinded in my relationship with my spouse, with my family, with my friends, with work, with, you know, my attitude about people in politics? Look at what's going on in our country. Everybody's so, you know, I'm, I know, I know, I know. I know this or I know that, you know, or whatever. So, Pokehi Vrim would be, oh, you know, what if I saw everybody as made but Selam Elohim. Oh yeah, that's one of the blessings. So one of the blessings is Baruch Sha'asani Blessed are you, Adonai our God, who made me in your image. Sha'asani Bitsalmo. This is a statement about self worth, right? From the very beginning of the Torah. The first thing we learned about human beings in the Torah is that every human being is made Bitsalam Elohim in the image of God. So and I, I mean, you've all heard me say this a million times, but I'll say it again anyway, because I like it, that what's so powerful about that message for me is what it doesn't say. <clears throat> There's no except. It doesn't say in the first chapter of Genesis, God created human beings in God's image, except women, gays, people that speak Spanish, people that are poor, people that are rich, whatever. There isn't an except. Boys, girls, whatever. Everybody, everybody is entitled to self-worth. Everybody is, every baby comes into the world according to Jewish tradition, pure and made in God's image. And then they get screwed up along the way in lots of different ways, you know, mostly by the way adults deal with them. But, you know, things happen. It's very rare that it's like really somebody born somehow under a bad sign. It's mostly how people are raised and their life experiences and what kind of abuse they've experienced and things like that that happens to people. Because we believe every baby comes into the world made in the divine image and worthy of self-worth, spiritual self-worth. So when I say that every morning, I think, so what does that mean to me? What does it mean to be made in in the divine image, it's not like God looks like me, except for I hope my wife thinks that. But other than that, you know, people don't, this is not what God looks like. But so in the image of God means, like, what might else, what else does that mean? A couple other, anybody? What would be God's image? 
reflection of the qualities that we associate, the positive qualities we associate with God. That'd be one. Kindness, compassion, love, all those kind of things. Okay, so, another blessing I say every morning. Thank you, God, for making me Jewish. (laughs) Making me a part of Israel. Shasani Yisrael, who's made me a part of our people. And every time I say that, I mean, there's lots of things not to like about who your own culture or your own people, after all. You know, because we're human. We do all kinds of things. I think about every day, okay, what does that mean? What's something positive that's part of my identity because I was born, in my case, and I mean, there's spent in my 40-plus years as a rabbi, lots of people who weren't born Jewish who chose to become Jewish, you know, and, and that's always such a gift, and it's always a reminder to me and anybody else who's a part of that, oh, there's something valuable here. Someone's willing to choose this when they don't have to. You know, even with anti-Semitism and all the things that go on, they're choosing this. So for me, it's an affirmation of, oh, yeah, what are the, some of the things that to me are make it valuable to be that? I say the next prayer, Baruch Sha'asani ben Horin. Thank you, God, for making me free. Ben Horin means a free person. Freedom. Like how easy it is to take for granted my own freedom. You know, free to be me, free to do whatever, free to do this, free to not do this, free to travel. I'm, we're so, I grew up in a world of so many freedoms that I take it for granted. But if I look around the world, this reminds me to look around the world and see how many people don't have the same freedoms I do. And then also, for me, personally, I say that and I realize, oh, I have economic freedom that so many people in my country don't have. So many people don't have all the freedoms. Like I said, I could travel, I can this, I can do it because I have the money to do it. Because I w- worked and got in a profession and had money and got paid and whatever, you know, and have the privileges that I've had to be able to work and do the, the life that I've led. So to me, saying this, once I express the gratitude for my own freedom, it's to remind me that to take some responsibility for those who don't share the same freedoms, who don't have the same opportunities that I have. So I say, Baruch Arumim, which means, thank you, God, for clothing the naked. I got nice clothes. I'm always going for best-dressed rabbi. So, you know, people are always commenting, ah, oh, you got great clothes, you dress well. So happens to be something I like. I like to dress well. I have more clothes than I'm ever going to wear. Here's the reality. I keep going into my closet going, I should get rid of some of these clothes. In fact, we got rid of a whole bunch of them. You know, we take coats, we go drive around trying to find homeless people to give them to. Things. I have all these more clothes than I'll ever, 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 ever wear. And then some reason I keep buying new clothes anyway. You know, what's with that? But it reminds me to say thank you when I express gratitude for this nice clothing that I've got to think about what it's like for all those people who don't, who have one thing to wear out in the world. And which is why Dean and I keep gathering our own clothes. In our case, I go to the National Council of Jewish Women thrift shop and I donate it there because I like that and 
My mother's been active in NCJW her whole life. My mother, who's 100, still active in NCJW. So I donate there. But saying these prayers are about, the Talmud says, you need to start your day in gratitude. That's the point. And start listing all the things you're grateful for. So they provide you with a roadmap. Here's a roadmap of what to say. Upon standing up straight, you should say a blessing that ends Zokef Kfufim, who upholds those who are bent over. You know, and I think of all of those ways in which people in the world don't, and I straighten up every time I say that blessing. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Stand up straight, because the more I do this, the more I'm going to end up walking that way. You know, and when you're not well, and you're bent over because you're not well, you really appreciate it when you get better, if you get better, to be able to stand up straight or sit up straight. Bert says it's not just physical. What do you mean? Being emotionally. Ah, take it as being emotionally. It follows material. Yes. Yes. That people, people emotionally and psychologically. People that are emotionally and psychologically bent, people that are oppressed. People that are enslaved. Yeah, there's more slavery in the world today than ever. If you go on those websites that deal with slavery, literally more people are enslaved today in the world than ever in all kinds of different ways um, all around the world, including right here in our own country, in our own city, sex slavery and all that kind of stuff that goes on. Um, and they're physically, emotionally, spiritually bent over. And we acknowledge, thank God that I personally am able to stand up straight in all those ways, raise myself up from being bent over, uh, whether it's with therapy, whether it's with prayer, whether it's with community, whether it's with friendship, whether it's with having a partner in life who believes in me and lifts me up when I am down. That's also what's so crucial. So something as simple as thanking God for, and acknowledging God as Zokef Kfufim, who raises up those who are bent over, is a reminder of what the blessing that I have, and to reach out my hand to any of my friends who are bent over physically or spiritually or emotionally as well. So we say, here's a popular one for me, Baruch Hamayim. I love this one, because we live by the ocean. Literally means who stretches out the earth to the water, to the sea. We thank God who stretches out the earth to the sea. What does that mean? Well, have you ever driven down to the bottom of Chautauqua and noticed that sign there that's with an arrow that says tsunami evacuation route? It's like I look at that every time I drive by there and go, I hope you're kidding. I hope that's a joke. Tsunami evacuation route, you know, because to me, and once I started learning this one simple morning prayer, who stretches the earth to the water, every time I go on PCH, I look at the ocean, I go, thank God it stays there. That's what it, you know, what's the magic? 70% of the world is ocean, right? Thank God it stays there. Because what are we all worried about climate change and the glaciers melting and the ocean rising? You know, 
and all of our airports are right on the water all around the world, and they're all going to get flooded if it goes up two feet or whatever. I mean, it's like you look at it there and you go, oh, stay there. Don't move. You know what I mean? So, I mean, that's amazing to think. All from a little one-line prayer that our ancestors commanded us to say, to have this amazing appreciation for the miracle of our everyday lives that we take for granted. Oh, yeah, there's the beach and there's the ocean. Not so much. This la- Do you see what was on the news in the last couple of days? The flooding here, the sinkholes that open up. The, it's like we are so unprepared. We, we're all complaining that there's a drought, and we're totally unprepared for it to not be a drought because we have no sewers anywhere. So the minute it rains, we flood. You know, I lived in the valley for six years at Temple Judea. The valley's the worst. Every time it rains, it floods everywhere because there's literally no drains anywhere. So everything, every, every street becomes a river. So some simple prayer that the Talmud says, you're supposed to say in the morning, thank you for stretching out the land to the water, is a reminder to us to not take for granted the world in which we live, the order of the world in which we live. We say, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, She'asani Kirtzono. It's actually my favorite prayer in now the modern world of he, she, they, them, gender fluidity and everything. She'asani Kirtzono means, thank you God for making me according to your will. Thank you God for making me. This was actually a prayer that was created post the prayer only, the list of prayers only saying, thank you for making me a man, which it used to be because it was all boys who said this. And it didn't say in the Talmud, women should say, thank you for making me a woman. So instead they created, thank you for making me according to your will for women originally. For me, I say it every morning along with thanks for making me a boy because I like who I am. I want to affirm my own personness. And then thank you according to making me kirtsono, according to your will, because we're all different. We all have different intellectual abilities, emotional abilities, strengths, weaknesses, challenges, health issues, whatever. You know, some of us are dyslexic, some of us are this, some of us are that. And, and if we, instead of looking at, oh, I need to be a supermodel, I don't look like a supermodel, I must not be an attractive person. Or I, you know, I should look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, or I should look whatever, should have more muscles or less muscles, or be taller, or be thinner, or be this. That's why I like Lizzo. Lizzo, man, she's like my favorite these days. You know, big girls. It's like, be who you are. You know, celebrate who you are. It's like we are in an era in which people more and more are willing to say, hey, this is who I am. This is how God made me, quote, in quotes. This is how I am. It's got to be okay, because this is who I am. You know, that doesn't say in the first chapter of Genesis, God made everyone in God's image except those who don't look like somebody. Didn't say that anywhere. Everybody. You get to be who you are. You get to say, thank you for making me according to your will as a celebration of your own selfness, who you are. 
that who you are has inherent fundamental worth, whether you're big or small or tall or short or white-skinned or black-skinned or some other colored skin or what language you speak or what religion you are. It's the height of arrogance to think anything else, right? And that's one of the things that's so precious about Judaism. I'm going to end, actually, because I'm only going to do this for an hour. So, this is kind of my introduction for those who are going to show up next month. It's going to be more stories, actual stories, of Midrash and Talmud that I like, my favorite stories. Um, so, uh, maybe, yeah, so I'll end tonight with one of my other favorite stories because it's real short and because you've all heard it, but I still love it which is the story of the two guys who were out in the rowboat. You've heard me tell this a million times, out in the ocean. And one of them, up from the Talmud though, one of them picks up a hand drill and starts drilling in the bottom of the boat. And the other one freaks out and goes, what are you doing? Stop, what are you doing? What are you doing? And the guy with the drill goes, what's it to you? I'm only drilling under my seat. You know, to me, that's the essence of Talmud. There's no such thing as only drilling under my seat. The metaphor is almost too obvious to even say that we're all in the same boat. But, you know, I think there was Martin Luther King who said, no matter what vessel we got here on, we're all in the same boat now. Something like that. So, this is Rabbi Stephen Carr-Rubin. I am signing off. Thank you all for showing up. Hopefully some of you will show up again next month, whenever it is. I don't even remember the date. Um, but you'll get notices about it, and um, have a wonderful rest of the week.